We've been taking a journey through Luke's travel narrative in the middle of his gospel. The beginning of Luke's gospel takes place in Galilee, Jesus' early ministry. That's kind of his home territory. It's safe. It's comfortable. Uh, he knows the people and they know him, though some even there will uh, refuse to acknowledge who he is. But then they take a journey through Samaria, which is these 10 chapters in the middle of the Gospel of Luke, on, their way, on his way and the disciples' way towards Jerusalem. The text says that Jesus set his face towards Jerusalem. And there he will go to a cross. There uh, the world will come to see an empty tomb. There Jesus will uh, meet his disciples, promise them the sending of the Spirit, and ascend to heaven. So we're going from kind of this home safe place through Samaria, which was a dangerous kind of territory, towards Jerusalem, the city of God, the city of peace. And this idea of, uh, of our spiritual lives, of the Christian life as a journey, is something that has, uh, is a term that's been used a lot um, relatively recently, talking about, you know, embracing the journey, going on the journey, uh, we're all on a journey, which um, may have some drawbacks when used inappropriately, but it's actually being used uh, initially to respond to this idea that once you're, once you're saved, once you place your faith in Jesus, once you've experienced conversion, that the Christian life is over. That basically you're just, okay, hanging out, waiting until heaven does come. Uh, you basically skip from Galilee to Jerusalem and don't walk uh, the road of faith along with Jesus. So this idea of journeying with Jesus is intended to help us understand the whole of the Christian life in terms of salvation. The early church talked about salvation as being a past, present, and future reality. I have been saved. Ultimately, as Christ died upon the cross and then rose from the tomb. But also, I have been saved in that moment when God in his grace revealed himself and his love to me in such a way that I could receive it and respond in faith. So I, I was saved when I went beneath the waters of baptism and God sealed that promise upon me. Salvation, our salvation is a, a past, we have been justified. It's a past reality, it's complete, it's finished, as Jesus said on the cross. And yet there, in a very um, real way, I am also continually being saved. God's salvation continues to come to me, to grow and to expand in my life. Maybe sanctification is a good way that we could think about this. I am continually being saved as God reveals God's beauty to me, as God uh, gives me eyes to see him and to know him and to love him and to follow him. Day in and day out, I'm, I'm continually entering into this work of salvation. And finally, ultimately, one day in the future, I will be saved in a total and comprehensive way, um, in a way that leaves no remainder. Uh, and when, when God's kingdom comes, when, comes when Christ returns, when he brings the fullness of the kingdom and of kingdom life um, to us. That's how the early church talked about salvation, a past reality, uh, present and future. And this idea of journeying helps us to not get stuck on that first one. It's in the past. My salvation's in the past, and basically I have nothing to do until eventually I go to heaven. And so we're wanting to use this language. Uh, I've been reading some uh, 
some stuff on Jonathan Edwards recently, uh, which has been really helpful to me. I just didn't know a whole lot about him, and I found it very interesting. He's kind of America's premier theologian, and many folks will call him um, the, the greatest mind, the greatest philosopher that uh, America has ever produced. Um, so that's you know, a pretty weighty recommendation, the greatest theologian and greatest philosopher all in one. Uh, I've needed to learn a little more about him, and um, as I've done that, uh, I've, I've also encountered a lot, interestingly enough, this, this is how God kind of works in my life a lot of times, I'll have kind of one topic and suddenly it's coming at me from a lot of different ways, so I'm trying to understand, okay, God, what do you want me to know here? And one, th- one of the real common uh, or, or principal topics of Edwards is thinking about the Christian life as a journey. Uh, he's in good company. He's, he's a Puritan. The Puritans produced a lot of amazing work. And in this sense, this idea of a journey is not just a new concept responding to contemporary issues. It's a very broad, broadly uh, Christian one in the whole history of the church. And Edwards talks about this journey of the Christian life as a journey of seeing more and more, seeing more clearly and more clearly. Uh, He refers to Paul's um, uh, words in uh, one of his letters that talks about now we see as in a glass dimly or darkly. Now we we see God has revealed himself to us in Jesus so that we can see clearly enough to respond in faith. What we see and are given to see is true, but it's not complete. We, we see in a, um, in a dark way. It's not totally clear. Not All is not light yet for us. We don't see, and here's the end of the journey for him, we don't see yet face to face. And so I'm going to write that on the, I got my trusty board back here. I'm going to write this on the board. So uh, thinking about our faith as a journey of ever-increasing sight, You probably remember as God was revealing himself to you, giving you enough light to see Jesus in a way that you could respond in faith. He gives you that by the Holy Spirit. Um, And so at first, uh, at first we see dimly. But as we journey towards God, eventually the result is in heaven we shall see him face to face. We shall see him as he is. Face to face. And then this, this journey in between is um, this journey of ever-increasing sight. Now, um, I struggle to put into words or to even conceive what it would be like to see God face to face. Even Moses did not receive this in this life, right? He, turned his, he had to turn his face away. And yet the result of that uh, was that he came back down the mountain with his face shining so brightly he had to wear a veil so as not to blind people. To see God face to face. The pure in heart shall see God is what the psalmist says. What is it, what is it like? It probably defies our speech and our categories of our language and the ability that we have to describe, but it would be of the utmost and complete beauty. It would... Um, be the most uh, uh, delightful thing that we could possibly um, imagine. 
we get a glimpse of this in Luke, actually just before this travelogue starts. As Jesus goes up the mountain like Moses did, but instead of Moses coming back having been having having received the shining light upon him so that he could go back and others could see this, Jesus is actually the one shining. Uh, and there upon the Mount of Transfiguration, we see Moses and Elijah come to meet with Christ. Uh, Peter, James, and John are able to see this and to witness it. The glory, the Shekinah glory, the light of God um, is transfiguring. We see Jesus transfigured, but it also transfigured us. As we see it, we are also transformed. Um, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to include here uh, just a quick glimpse of what it, what it looks like to see one made in the image of God face to face. And I wonder if you might smile as you see this. Uh, it's a quick video of my daughter, Spencer, who's just now beginning to see what it, experience what it looks like to see someone face to face. You can see her smiling at us. Feel how you feel as you see one made in the image of God face to face. And then think just ever so briefly, if you can, about what it would be like to see God face to face. That's part of the journey that we're on. We see dimly now. We're seeing more and more as God reveals his light to us. And one day we shall see face to face. So take a quick look at that video. So I imagine you've probably watched that at least once now. I've probably watched it 50 times now. Better yet, I get the real thing just about every morning. Uh, Spencer is so eager to look and to smile and to talk. And uh, it brings unimaginable joy to my heart. And I can only imagine what it would be like to see God too. Um, so maybe as we think, let's put all this in the context of a journey, which we first see dimly, but... Eventually, we shall see face-to-face. -face. I also want you to now think about this, maybe not just as a journey, which can just be a trip somewhere, right? Which all manner of things might happen. Um, I also want you to think about this in terms of a pilgrimage. A pilgrimage is a trip to a holy place. Or in this instance, our pilgrimage, our life of faith, is a journey, is a trip to God, to heaven. I want to frame this for you in three quick ways. So here's the journey. Um, Initially, the journey is from um, our moment of conversion to God, right? So that's simple enough. So conversion and God. I'll make that an era because that is an ever-increasing uh, journey. So as we move from conversion to God, uh, we also are given enough light to see, more and more light, so that we see more and more clearly. And as we see, we really come to know. And as we come to know, we really come to participate in God's life until we do it in all its fullness. 
Um, this journey that we are on is only possible because of the journey that Jesus took, right? So, so Jesus has actually walked this journey for us. He has walked these steps ahead of us. First, by coming down, right? Came down to, he descended, came down to earth. Then he walked the path that human beings have to walk faithfully and well, um, lived it beautifully, uh, lived it in a way that brought glory to God until eventually he died, right? And he died on a cross. He was obedient even unto the point of death. And then he rose again. And he promised the sending of the Spirit. And he ascended to heaven. So Jesus has walked the path for us. Then he sends us the Spirit, which we remember at Pentecost, today, he gives the Spirit, which binds us to himself, which means that he grants by grace to us everything that he has done, including his ascent to God. And Paul says that our lives are now hidden with Christ in God. So, interestingly, this path, this journey is both a knowing, an ever-increasing knowing of God, but it's also coming to know who we actually are until we shall experience that fully revealed with God because that is where our true life, our true self is hidden. Um, now, there are layers to this journey. This is kind of the, we talk about the transcendent story. This is, this is the macro story made possible by God in Christ who gives the Spirit. But this journey can also be seen replicated in other places, we talked about this is some of that typological reading of Scripture. We, I think there are also types of uh, this, this grand story being lived out each and every day. We can also see this in the Bible. So we, we've taken um, this journey that Jesus is on here in the, in the middle of Luke from Galilee to Jerusalem. which is called, literally translate, the city of peace or the city of God. And along the way, he travels through Samaria. So here's a journey to a destination, which is victory and peace and life risen from the dead. So we can think about this in terms of the big story. We can think about this in terms of various places in the scripture which illuminate this for us. Think about the Exodus story that we uh, talked about last week. Um, but we can also think about this personally. Your personal story, but also even these last weeks of pandemic. You know, uh, that's sort of what we've, we've kind of been layering these on top of each other and trying to understand how to process this experience that we're in. What is God doing? How does this fit into the bigger narrative? How can we live into and be observant of how God is moving in our life? And so we move from this sort of home Galilean comfort. We move from a place of comfort and normalcy into this time of pandemic and quarantine and closures 
And we're moving, we're hoping and looking forward to that day where we shall experience um, a victory, which is actually not a return to how it was before. It's, it's going to be different. But hopefully we will have learned and grown something, grown during this time and learned something more about ourselves. Hopefully we can see a little cl- more clearly after this um, the beauty and the glory and the faithfulness of God who meets us even as we journey along this road. Um, so does this make sense? What I want you to think about it like this. You are in your own personal story as you walk this pandemic road. I want you to try to make sense of your own walking of that in light of the big story up here. And part of what we're doing now through this series is making light of this big story in terms of, uh, let's do it like this, in terms of this small or maybe a little more manageable version right here in the middle of Luke. So all this is kind of woven together. And, I hope, and hopefully you can see um, how all of life can be gathered up and understood and lived into in terms of the story of salvation. I was saved, I'm being saved, I will be saved. So, how have we done that in Luke? Well, our first week, um, it was the passage where Jesus says... Um, you know, foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. He responds to the various people who either called to jo- join with him on the journey or who said, hey, I'll be there, but give me a second. Let me go bury uh, my father. And he says, let the dead bury their dead. We learned through that um, that this journey is going to be hard. It's not easy. It's not simple. It's not straightforward. Um, go read The Pilgrim's Progress. Uh, it's, it's a Puritan um, uh, version of the story of salvation and you're always running into the pool of despondency or um, uh, various challenges along the way various people uh, that christian encounters that makes the journey hard and yet through this he's also seeing ever more clearly and so week one it's going to be hard and yet there's nothing more urgent than making this trip with jesus in fact as we can see, it's unavoidable. So many times in your life, you'll have opportunity to make this journey. And through it, God's grace continues to be revealed. So hard, it's urgent. Um, and yet it is also blessed because we're walking it with Jesus. Uh, in then week two of this series, it was about the parable of the Good Samaritan. In it, we discovered that we are those lying in the ditch in the midst of this pandemic crying out and Jesus does not pass us. Jesus does not pass you by. He is the good Samaritan who takes us, who binds our wounds, who um, carries us to a house with a room prepared. In my father's house, there are many rooms. I will go and prepare a place for you. He goes and he buys the man a meal and seats him at the table just as he brings us and seats us around his table. Uh, he washes the man's wounds, and just as we uh, see him doing for us in baptism. Jesus is the good Samaritan who does not pass us by. And so that was the story. Uh, Jesus doesn't pass 
you buy. That's good news. Um, this week, what we're going to do uh, is look at chapter 11. Luke chapter 11. In it, there, there are a lot of things happening, but at the very beginning, it's the Lord's Prayer. Now, I, I did a teaching on this um, maybe three or four weeks ago, maybe a month ago or so, and it is posted on our YouTube channel. So that kind of goes further in depth in the Lord's Prayer. And you can look at, you know, uh, the Father's glory and the Father's provision and the Father's forgiveness and the Father's protection, all of these kinds of things that we're asking for that Jesus teaches us to ask for. So if you want to go deeper with that, uh, check out that other video. But what I want to do today is I will read that uh, passage, and then I want to just think for a second about prayer as a means of grace, as something God gives us as we make this journey that will allow us to receive more light so that we can see better, so that we can know him, so that we can see how beautiful and glorious God is, so that our hearts can be filled with love in a way that we can respond. Prayer is one of the principal means of grace. It's something that you need as you make this trip, as you make this journey, and it's a gift from God. So we're looking at the Lord's Prayer. And here it is, from Luke uh, chapter 11. Now Jesus was praying in a certain place. And when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray as John taught his disciples. And he said to them, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our sins, for we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us, and lead us not into temptation. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. <clears throat> so prayer is a means of grace. Um, we need grace on this journey. I'm sure you're very aware of that now. And the good news is that the same Jesus who comes to you and bids you to join him for this trip, um, who as you journey always sees you, never passes you by, the same Jesus also gives you gifts that will help you as you make your way with him towards God, towards Jerusalem, towards the city of peace, towards the cross and the empty tomb and towards victory. So what are means of grace? The, the church historically, that's actually kind of a technical term, the means of grace. Uh, principally, as Presbyterians, as, as uh, Protestants, we say that the means of grace are the word and the sacraments, by which we mean <clears throat> um, baptism and communion. These are the principal means of grace. But there are also other uh, gifts along the way that we have come to call means of grace. Ways in which um, God, as we practice these things, <clears throat> ways that God has kind of promised to meet us in them and to give us grace. As we, as we enter into prayers, we enter into these means of grace. I want to give you just a couple examples of um, how 
God works in these things. And this comes from actually from Jonathan Edwards, who I told you I've been reading some lately. So he gives a couple examples. Um, uh, the first example is um, the man that Jesus uh, met at the pool of Bethesda. And you'll remember that there's a pool there, and um, once a day an angel of the Lord would come and stir the water up, and the first one into the pool was healed. But this man was disabled. He said, when Jesus met him, I can never get down to the water. There's always somebody getting there before me, and uh, I just don't know what to do. And uh, Edwards doesn't focus so much upon Jesus as the one healing him as he's talking about means of grace. He actually uses this example of the pool as um, the way in which the, the, the waters of the pool, there's nothing special about them in particular. I mean, it's a, it's a pool of water. But it's God's activity that comes and brings healing through them. And so he, he spoke of the pool as an example of one of the means of grace. Here's this thing that, that God has provided that doesn't necessitate or force God's hand. God could not send the angel. But God has graciously chosen to use this particular pool or this particular discipline or this particular means of conveying and conferring his grace upon us. Another way to think about it uh, from Edwards is Jesus turning the water to wine. Remember, there's, there, there's a wet, it's the first miracle in John that Jesus performs. Um, great story. Uh, uh, and Jesus, basically the, the wine runs out at this party. Really embarrassing for the host. Mary, Jesus' mother, comes and tells Jesus, hey, look, we've run out of wine. Do something about it. Jesus said, it's not really my time yet. And Mary says to the servants, hey, just do what he says. Jesus says, okay. Um, says to the servants, go feel, fill the jars with water. The means of grace are the, the, the servants who go and in obedience, uh, and fill up the jars with water. Prayer is just filling the jars up with water. It doesn't force Jesus to come and turn them to wine, but it's the thing that Jesus has directed us to do with the accompanying uh, promise that he will, he will meet us through these things and that he will confer his grace upon us, that he will transform us. Even as he changed water to wine, he will transform us uh, from one uh, degree of glory to the next. Uh, and then Edward's last example was Elijah uh, when he was kind of engaged in battle with the prophets of Baal. Mary has this competition with uh, this multitude of prophets who worshiped Baal and Elijah's the lone prophet of the living God. And so um, he says, you know, we'll go set up a couple altars and whichever God is faithful and, and uh, powerful will light his. And so prophets of Baal go and do their thing and um, call down, you know, Baal to come and set their altar on fire. It never happens. Elijah goes, builds up his altar, pours water all over it, drenches it, soaks it. And then the, God sends the fire down from heaven and it consumes uh, the altar. Edwards likened the means of grace, likened prayer even, to Elijah building the altar. The altar doesn't do anything in and of itself, but it's sort of the preparatory work 
that God has called us to before he sends his grace upon us. It's, it's the place where that can begin to happen. So I hope as you begin to think about prayer on the journey, know that God gives you the gift of prayer, even as he provided a pool of water that will bring healing, even as he, in response to his mother's plea, um, commanded his, the servants of the house there to go fill the jars with water. Um, even as he turned those to wine, even as uh, the, the glory of God was revealed and the consuming fire sent upon the altar that God had called Elijah to build, so too when you pray, God is faithful to come, to use it as a place of healing, to use it as a place of transformation, to use prayer as a place and a means of revealing his glory to you and in you and through you. Now, two things I want you to notice just about the prayer at the beginning. And maybe the, the second one will pull some stuff together. So the first thing I want you to notice comes to us in Eugene Peterson. Um, he made note that this is the only place where the disciples asked Jesus to teach them something. Only recorded place. They're not asking Jesus to teach them how to do miracles. I, okay, Jesus, teach us how to do that. They're not asking Jesus um, uh, for the power to overwhelm demons. They, they say, we don't know how to do it sometimes. But, but nowhere is in, the, in the scriptures do we find an explicit request of the disciples of Jesus, the rabbi, the teacher, to teach them. This is the one place where they come to Jesus after Jesus had been praying in a certain place. When he was finished, they came and they said to him, Jesus, teach, teach us pray isn't that does that not have to be so significant they didn't ask him to teach them to preach that was a clear responsibility of theirs they asked him to teach them to pray i hope this gives you a, a glimpse here as we enter into this journey it's the kind of the first thing that we're noticing jesus giving his disciples teaching them explicitly teaching them how to pray I think that indicates its importance, uh, the significance of this gift. Uh, it's the only thing. It's their, it's their significant request. Uh, it's the only place in the Bible that important. And as we enter into prayer, and as the saints for centuries have entered into prayer, as we enter into prayer with Jesus, even in the way that he has taught us to pray, we begin to notice a few things. Three quick things, uh, which hopefully pulls us together. Um, we experience, as we pray, union. Union with Christ, which is what the whole gospel is about. Uh, it's about his coming down. It's about his faithful life. It's about the giving of the Spirit at Pentecost so that we can be made one with Jesus so that we can receive unity with him. It's what happens in baptism, what, what is renewed at the table so that we can experience unity with Christ. I don't know if you notice I sign my emails in Christ. We are made one with Christ and we are one in Jesus. It's why our unity is maintained even while we are social distancing, while we're worshiping in, in our homes and not in the gathered church. Um, 
Our worship doesn't display the fullness of that unity in, in the same way that it does when we're together, but we are still one. We experience unity with Christ, and we see that at the, in the very opening lines where it says, pray like this, Father. Jesus has in his grace in the sending of the Spirit and binding us to himself has given us the ability to, to enter into the same relationship that he has with the Father. Matthew says, our Father. Our fa That's how we begin. We, in union with Christ, can now pray our Father. There's union exemplified here in prayer, and we remember that right off the bat. It's the first thing we say, the first thing we acknowledge. Um, the second thing is communion. This is the whole point of the whole big story so that we can be one with God, so that we can experience communion with God, so that we can be with Him and He with us, so that we actually share His life. Um, there's that famous um, icon. We actually have it. I'm in the sanctuary here just outside the door to the left. Um, we have this hanging in our church. It's an icon uh, of, of the visitors who came to see Abraham. And they're seated in such a way uh, it's often called, um, uh, it's a depiction kind of, of of the Trinity. You can't really do that. So he draws this in a typological reading. Um, he, he paints this amazing image of uh, the visitors to Abraham, which were three, gathered around the table with a seat, as you're looking at it, a seat open to you. The invitation is to come and to pull up your chair to join in the life of God at the table. Prayer is the, sp is the space that we begin to open up in our own hearts and lives to experience that reality, to enter into that incredible gift that is ours because of what Christ has done. You have union with Christ and you are called into a life of communion with him and prayer is the place where that space begins to open up for communion. And finally, it is the place of encounter is the place where we meet the Lord. Certainly God can reveal himself to us in any place at any time. For Paul, it was on the road to Damascus. He was going to persecute some Christians, and boom, the Lord appeared to him. The Lord shone his light on him in a way that made him physically blind, but opened his eyes so that he could truly know and so that he could truly love and respond in grace. Uh, prayers that place where we begin to see more and more clearly as we engage in this journey of going from seeing dimly or darkly and seeing God face to face. In prayer, we begin to see the glory of God. We begin to see God's beauty. We begin to see God's grace. And we begin to experience relationship with Him in such a way that we come to know Him and to love Him and to enter fully into His life. Prayer is this place where we can encounter him. All of this together is a gift as we continue this journey. And as you think about, as we're about to come back to worship, um, hopefully we pray this pandemic is, is coming, coming to an end before very long. We continue to pray for that and hope for that. Um, as this time in isolation, as this time in quarantine, 
begins to draw to an end as things begin to reopen as you begin to think back over boy that seemed like yesterday when we were together and also it seemed like 10 years ago as you begin to reflect on the journey that you have walked I hope even if you begin today that you will be able to say it's changed my life of prayer a bit change the ways in which I'm creating space for God in my own heart, acknowledging the union that I have with Him and looking for ways to see more clearly the glory of the one who enters in, who does not pass us by, who comes and binds up and heals and blesses, who bids us to come and to share in His very life, and he gives us gifts, means of grace that help us do that along the way. Bless you, church. I look forward to seeing you now, hopefully very, very soon. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.